welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. Hey, today we're going to jump into what I think is really the crux of the story of Exodus. It's the moment of Exodus. Exodus, the book is named after this act of when God led a people out of slavery. And we're at that very pointy end of the story as we continue our journey through Exodus. In many ways, I think this is uh, one of the most significant stories that we can get our head around in our understanding of the scripture and how it relates to the whole breadth of scripture. I just want to tell you right up front where I'm going today. For those of you that are here and have had uh, have a relationship with Jesus and have put your faith in Jesus, I hope what I do today is bring alive again for you the story of all that God has done, not just throughout history, but in and through his son Jesus. I hope that maybe you get some words today to help you as you share the story of salvation with others. For those of you that might be here today and you're exploring Christian faith or you're asking questions of Christian faith or you're wondering who Jesus is, I want to tell you the way that the Scripture brings the whole narrative together and makes sense of who Jesus is and what He did and the implication that that has for you. I'm going to land today by giving you an opportunity to actually begin a relationship of loving, following and serving Jesus and inviting Him to be your Saviour. That's where we're going to land today. So just so you know from right up front. But to catch you up on the story, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we've looked at how the Israelites were a people that ended up in Egypt and now they were living in a land of slavery and oppression. There'd been genocide amongst their people. It was a horrific time in their history. And the Bible tells us that they'd been there for over 400 years. Anyway, God hears, the scripture says that God hears the cry of the people. And so he says, through, uh, he says he's going to come and rescue them. He meets with this guy, Moses, through a burning bush. And he says, Moses, I've seen the oppression of my people. I've heard their cry. And now I'm going to come and rescue them out of the hand of Egypt. And he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh because I'm going to use you. And last week we looked at Moses' ex- excuses for why he couldn't be the one that went. But God says, Moses, I'm going to do something incredible, but I need you to be part of this. And God always uses people. We've seen that. God always uses people as part of his redemption story. And so God chooses Moses and Moses makes a bunch of excuses. So Moses gets joined by his brother Aaron and Moses and Aaron now become key members of the story moving forward. And what we find is right now we have a nation of people that have a problem and their problem is that they're slaves in Egypt. And what happens at this point is Moses goes, you know, believing the word of God to him and goes to the Pharaoh of Egypt, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time, and says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I want you to let God's people go. There's a really interesting comment that Pharaoh makes when Moses does this. It's told in Exodus chapter 5. He says this, It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Listen to this. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and will not let Israel go. See, in this moment right now, we come to a point where God is confronted with the power of Pharaoh. We have this showdown, the power of God versus the power of Pharaoh. A little bit later in chapter 9, this is what God says to Moses. He says, 
Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they may worship me or this time I'll send the full forces of my plagues against you and your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. So we have the Pharaoh, like the picture of power in humanity at the time. Pharaoh saw himself almost godlike. And Pharaoh says, I don't care what your God says. I don't know who he is. I have no account for him and I have no regard for him. And God says to Pharaoh, well, Pharaoh, you're about to discover that there is no one like me on all the world. We have this confrontation of power, the power of Pharaoh and the power of God. And and the story gets a little bit messy here for a while because all these terrible plagues come against the land of Egypt. God says to Moses, Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And it says that Pharaoh's heart is hard. And so God says, well, Moses, strike the river with your staff. And it says that the river is turned to blood. And all the fish and all the marine life in the river die. And and Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, do what you need to do. Go pray to your Lord and, and ask him to fix it. And that changes. And then again, Moses comes back and says, well, Pharaoh, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, no. And so Moses says, well, there's a plague coming. There's going to be frogs that are going to inhabit the land of Egypt. They're going to get into your homes. They're going to get into your bedrooms. They're going to get into the bed with you. Like they're going to be everywhere and it happens. And again, Pharaoh says to Moses, whatever you need to do to stop this. Moses prays and the plague ends. It says actually there were that many frog carcasses that were piled up in Egypt that the stench of rotting frogs. Can you just imagine that? This was a horrific time in the land of Egypt. And this pattern continues. We, we won't go through the details of every plague today, but there's all these plagues that come. Moses comes to Pharaoh, says, I want you to let my people go. Says that Pharaoh's heart is hard and he won't let them go. And so this plague is visited upon the land of Egypt. And as we go through the plagues, we realise that during the plagues, the people of Israel are spared often the devastation of what happens in the plagues. And so, you know, there's the blood in the river, there's the frogs, and then there's a plague of gnats, like just inhabiting people's skin. And then there's a plague of flies, and then there's a plague of livestock, where all the livestock die, and there's a plague of locusts, and there's a plague of uh, a hailstorm. And even in the midst of this, you ask, where is God? Like, where's the goodness of God in the midst of these plagues? There's a little verse in there that I think gives us a little picture of what God is like, because he says, Moses, go talk to Pharaoh. This is verse, chapter 9 again. He says, go and tell Pharaoh about the hailstorm that's about to be visited upon the land of Egypt. He said, therefore, at this time tomorrow, I'll send the worst hailstorm that's ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order, Pharaoh, to to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that's not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. See, even in the midst of this, God shows his nature as a gracious God. But the hailstorm comes and it's devastating to the land of Egypt. But still, it says, once the weather had cleared up, Pharaoh's heart was hard. It's crazy, isn't it, when you think about the details of this devastating plague. Pharaoh acknowledges that the power of God and says he'll fix it. Plague goes away. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. We wonder why Pharaoh could possibly be like this. But I actually wonder if we've been like this at times. 
Dad, one of those moments in desperation, you've cried out to God, everything's going wrong and you, know, you don't know what else to do. There's nowhere else to turn. So you get on your knees and you go, God, can you just fix this situation? I've done something really stupid. I've just, can you just stop the consequences that could happen, not happen? Can God, can you intervene in this moment? And you pray and you're just filled with anxiety about it. And all you can do is ask God to do something about it. And you wake up the next morning, it's been fixed. And then you think to yourself, that sorted itself out. I reckon that just happened. I reckon there was a good kind of stroke of luck there for me. Or maybe those couple of phone calls I made fixed the circumstance. And suddenly we forget how desperate we were for God to step in and fix things. Suddenly we find ourselves in a place where we've tried to step in, where we've started to take glory for the thing that God did. And I reckon I can see that in Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh says, well... That was a pretty devastating time, that hail. I told Moses to go do whatever he needed to do with his God and tell him to go away. I've woken up this morning, the sun's shining, the hail's gone. We'll recover from this land of Egypt. No, I'm not going to let them go. And so devastating plague after devastating plague after devastating plague after devastating plague until we get to the final one. The most devastating of all the plagues that is visited upon the land of Egypt. It's horrific It's sombre, it's sobering, but in it we get a glimpse of what God wants to do for us. And God said, Moses, I'm going to visit one final plague on the land of Egypt. And it's going to be the worst and the most devastating one. The locusts were bad, the darkness was bad, the gnats were bad, the boils were bad. It was all bad. But this one, this is going to strike at a place that is... Harder and worse than anything they've ever experienced. He says, I'm gonna, there's going to be a plague of death that's going to come through the land. And on this particular night, this plague of death is going to come through the land and the firstborn son of every family, every animal is going to perish as this plague passes through the land. But he says, Moses, I actually need you to give some instruction to the people of Israel about what I need them to do as this plague starts making its way towards the land of Egypt. And the Bible says this, that that every firstborn in the land of Egypt, it doesn't say every firstborn of the Egyptians, it says every firstborn in the land of Egypt. In other words, no discrimination there. But God says, okay, Moses, I want you to do something because I, I do actually want to discriminate in this case. And so here's what you're to tell my people. I want them to go to their flock and I want them to select a choice lamb, a year old lamb without defect. Not the, not the one that has no value, not the one that you know, looks like it doesn't have much life left. Go and find the unblemished, perfect year-old lamb. And on the 10th day of the month, I want you to take that lamb aside and I want you to keep watch on it until the 14th day. If you uh, haven't got a big family and you know that that lamb's going to be too much to feed you, I want you to go find another family that doesn't have one. I want you to pair up and I want you to find enough people to share in uh, that lamb and what it's going to be. And then he says this, on the 14th day, and this is where the the story gets a little gruesome. He says, on the 14th day of the month, right at twilight, I want you to slaughter the lamb. Then you're going to feast on it together. But before you do, what I need you to do is I need you to take the blood. And and we think of blood as gory and gruesome, but, but blood equals life. It's blood that actually brings life to us. If you think about it, blood equals life. And God says, when you slaughter the lamb, this is what I want you to tell all the people to do. Take some of the blood and go to their homes and on the doorposts 
And on the frames of their home, I want them to spread the blood. And so there were all the Israelites spreading the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their homes. And then God goes on to give some very, very specific instructions about the meal that they had to share together. And the scripture tells us what goes down that night. Let me pick the story up from Exodus chapter 12. God says this, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. You see, the people of Israel stood under the protection of the blood of the unblemished lamb. And the plague came through the land of Egypt, the Bible tells us. But every house that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the frame of the house, that plague, that plague of death passed over that house. Now, you might be familiar with this whole idea of Passover. It's, it's something we talk about occasionally in church. It's, it's a festival that became an annual event for the people of Israel. And you see, God said out the back of this, he said, okay, this is an important night. This is the night where the blood of the lamb, the sacrificed blood of the lamb, actually brought salvation. And at the end of this, Pharaoh wakes up and there's wailing and there's mourning and there's grief throughout the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh says to Moses, get your people and get out of my land. And at this moment, the exodus of Israel from Egypt begins. And God says to the people of Israel, okay, from now on every year, you're going to celebrate a festival. You're going to have a feast together. It's going to be known as the, the Passover or, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And here's the instructions about how it's to go down and how you're to celebrate it. And God said, I'm going to give you a meal that's going to remind you about that night in Egypt that I became your salvation. That the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb actually became your salvation. And so every year, the people of Israel would gather and they would celebrate in this feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover Feast. And there would be food and there would be drink and all of them would have emblems that would remind them of the story. And everybody that shared in that story would look back at what God had done. And they'd constantly retell the story. And part of their retelling of the story went like this. If God hadn't done what He did for our people back there, we right now would still be living as slaves in Egypt. And so they shared in the meal and they shared in the wine and they shared in the bread and they shared in all the other food that was part of that meal. And they looked back and they celebrated and they remembered and they honoured God for what He did. You see, there's something really important about habits and there's something really important about doing things that remind us of what God has done. We, we share the communion meal here once a month in church because... It's a, a constant reminder to us of what God has done for us. And this feast for the people of Israel was a constant reminder of their history and their story and the way that God had redeemed them. That's a pretty cool story in itself, but the story doesn't really end there because something happened. There was a problem. They were enslaved to Egypt. God became their salvation. And now they celebrate this meal looking back and celebrating all that God had done in rescuing them from the slavery and the oppression of Egypt. 
But people started to realize that there was a bigger problem than just the slavery that they used to live in in Egypt. That even though God had rescued them from them, they still lived now enslaved to something much greater than the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. See, people started to realize that they were enslaved to this thing called sin. Because even though Israel had been redeemed from the land of Egypt and you know, the story goes on to tell of all the stupid mistakes they made, dumb things they did, and the way they didn't trust God. But God was faithful, led them to the promised land, and they got to celebrate the story of God's promises coming true in their reality. But as time went on, people started to realize that it didn't fix the problem that's at the core of every human relationship and every human heart, and that is the problem of sin that lives within us. And we don't use the word sin around very much anymore do we it's kind of a church word you hear it when you come to church but the whole idea of sin is that there's stuff in all of our lives there's a brokenness in all of us there's a propensity in all of us to muck stuff up to stuff up relationships to make dumb choices to kind of speak a word out of season that devastates someone to pull people down rather than lift them up to abandon the way that God's called us to live and do things our own way to ignore the things he tells us to do in our relationships and in our lifestyle and to think that we got control. All those things are what we call sin. It's rejecting the ways of God and deciding that we've actually got a better solution for it. And in the story of Israel, sin became very apparent in the way that they treated each other, the way they treated the poor, the way they neglected the poor, the way they spoke about each other. And ultimately, the nation that was once in slavery in Egypt ended up exiled out of the promised land, living in the land of Babylon. You see, the story never got any better for the Israelites. They just kept doing things and abandoning their trust and their relationship in God. And even though they celebrated this feast every year and looked back and said, remember the night when we sprinkled the blood of the unblemished lamb on the door frames of our house and God rescued us with a mighty hand out of the oppressive land of Egypt and out of slavery of Egypt? There was still a problem that existed in every human heart. That was a problem of sin. What was going to happen for the problem of sin? Some hundreds of years later, hundreds and hundreds of years later, hundreds and hundreds of years later, every year after that feast had been celebrated, John, one of the four gospel writers, starts his story of the life of Jesus by saying this. In John chapter 1, it says that John the Baptist, who was actually the cousin of Jesus, was in the wilderness one day and he sees Jesus coming. And we've all got nicknames that we have for each other. Like we all, you, know, you could imagine as cousins, they had some pretty cool nicknames. I've got some nicknames, some I'm happy to share with you, some that I just, I'm trying to drop. But John the Baptist sees his cousin Jesus saying, and, and he declares something about Jesus that is profound in this moment. It's not a nickname, it's actually a profound statement of identity. He says this in John chapter one. He says, look, as John saw Jesus coming towards him, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a crazy name to give somebody. The Lamb of God. What, what does that mean? What significance does that have in the story of Jesus? Because he goes on and he's not often referred to by that. But a few times John says, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. When we fast forward to the last days of Jesus' life, in the last days of Jesus' life, it came to the time on the calendar where people shared this feast of unleavened bread, this Passover feast. 
And as everyone was preparing to get you know, the food out on the table and once again to tell the story of what God had done, Jesus gathers with his disciples and they make preparations for the Passover feast. They go, let's remind ourselves of the day when God passed over. He passed his judgment over our people. How he rescued us by the blood of the lamb on the door frames of the house. And as everyone got ready to share that story going back, Jesus starts sharing the story with his disciples, except he does something really different here. Instead of looking that way, Jesus, and he probably didn't physically do this, but this is, you'll get it. It's like he moves to the other side of the table and he says, okay, I want to do something different tonight. He says, we've always taken this bread and taken this wine and we've used it to look backwards and remind ourselves of what God had done. Tonight I'm going to use these same elements and this Passover moment to tell you about what God is doing. I want you to get the significance of what Jesus does here, right? This would be like one of us turning up to Christmas Day, sitting at the table and everyone saying, isn't it so good to celebrate the birth of Jesus? And someone standing up at the end of your table and saying, I just want to redefine this moment for you. No longer will Christmas be about the birth of Christ. From now on, the 25th of December is going to be proclaimed as a day in memoriam of me. Like you have to understand when Jesus stands up and speaks to a feast that carried that much significance for thousands of years, that was done in such a specific way, there were words that were spoken, there was a way that the meal was prepared, there was a time that it was shared, there was a place that it was shared, and Jesus and his disciples have prepared the Passover feast, and Jesus stands at the table and he grabs the bread and he says, yep, we remember God's rescue from slavery in Egypt. But let me tell you about something brand new that God's doing. And he takes the bread. The scripture tells us in Luke 22 what he does, that he breaks the bread and he says, from now on, when you eat this bread, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Keep going. I've lost my notes, so we'll just keep going. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, divide it among you. And for I tell you, I'll not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke the bread. And he gave it to them and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, God gave the people of Israel a meal to remember all that he'd done. Now Jesus gives us a meal to remember all that he's going to do. And he walked out of that meal and out of that moment and the clock started to tick when he found himself hung on a cross. And if we gazed upon that cross, we always have nice, clean you know, clean cut crosses. But when Jesus was brought down to that cross, his blood was smeared across the cross beams of that cross. And in that moment, something brand new is declared, isn't it? John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus came and was nailed to a rugged Roman cross. The Lamb of God, the perfect, unblemished 
sacrifice of God come for the sins of the world. Now, the story doesn't quite end or even consolidate itself there. You see, there were thousands of people that died on Roman crosses every year. It wasn't an It wasn't a new sight to see someone hung on a cross. And so Jesus on the cross was just one amongst hundreds, amongst thousands of others that had had their life taken by the powerful, brutal Roman regime on the cross. But Jesus' story kind of comes full circle when on the third day something incredible happened. You see, right back in Egypt, the power of God confronted the power of Pharaoh. And God won, and the blood of the Lamb was spread on the door frames of the house, and anyone that stood in the shadow of those door frames and the blood of the Lamb was spared the judgment of God, and the grace of God was poured out on for them, and they were rescued and they were redeemed, and God's salvation came to bear on them. In the cross, the power of God confronted something much greater than the power of Pharaoh. The power of God confronted the power of death, the last thing that could ever separate us from an eternal relationship with Him. And so with the cross still looming large and the blood of Jesus on the cross, I would keep going that way, but we'll feed back really badly. On the third day, something incredible happened. The Lamb of God walked free from the clutches of death. We call it the resurrection. It's why we meet on a Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. It's why we gather on a Sunday because the story of Jesus takes fulfillment in the fact that the perfect Lamb of God was nailed on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins. But on the third day, he rose to life and said the final thing, death, it's been confronted and it's been defeated. And so suddenly the cross of Christ now stands alone amongst all those that lost their life on those rugged Roman crosses. Because now it carries with it the promise of salvation to all who choose to stand in the shadow of the blood of the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God for our sins. The Bible talks about this in a whole bunch of places. As we go further on, 1 Peter 1 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. I need the band to come and join me this morning. See, what God did in Egypt was really just a small taste of what God would do for all of us. Everyone back there that stood in the shadow of the sacrificed lamb and the blood of the lamb that was smeared on the door frames of their house, escaped the judgment and the wrath of God and discovered God as their salvation. You know what the Bible tells us? The cross of Christ happened because none of us have the capacity to save ourselves. None of us have enough goodness in us to actually make restitution for the stupid things we've done or the sin that we have committed. See, the Israelites had nothing in their own power to stop what was going on, but God gave them a way out of their mess. And through it, he became their salvation. And every one of us doesn't 
actually have the capacity to be our own saviour. See, lots of people try to be their own saviour. You see, they try and behave their way into God's good books or they try and do lots of good stuff or they try and be better or they try and just, you know, take control of things. But at some point, all of us realise that we don't have the capacity in ourselves to deal with the mess that we carry. And the most glaring reminder of that is that every one of us in this room has a date at the end of our story where death will enter our picture. No one has ever worked out a way to escape the final reality of death except the Lamb of God who died on that cross and shed His blood to take away your sins. And He declared it was finished. And on the third day, He walked free from the clutches of death. And He said, from now on, anyone who chooses to put their trust and their faith and their hope in me and what I've done and my blood that equals life that was shed so that you could have life. You see, this is what it means to put your faith in Jesus or to become a Christian, not to try harder to get into God's good favour, but at some point to submit yourself to the fact that God has done everything for you that you could not do for yourself. And He shed His blood so you could be forgiven And He walked through the clutches of death. So one day you too can walk through death into life in Christ for all eternity. Through the precious, sacrificed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus. I said this is where the Exodus story really carries its parallels and its power because God gave us a great context to make sense of what He was going to do. And that was the story of Israel and this is now the story of us. And everyone that stood in the shadow of that door frame was spared the wrath of God and any one of us, no matter how good we've been, no matter how many times we've sat in church our life, no matter how many stuff-ups we've had, no matter how many dumb things we've done, no matter what we did this morning or last night or last week, any one of us that chooses to stand in the shadow of the cross will have their sins forgiven, will have their future secured. Lord Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God that was given for us. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you chose to shed your blood so that I could be forgiven. And thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life so that I may have life. Thank you, Jesus, that in your blood, I don't have to atone or make restitution for my own sins, but I can lean into you and trust what you've done for me. I want to thank you for all that you've done and all that you continue to do. I want to thank you that in the cross, we don't just find life We don't just find forgiveness, but we find purpose and we find hope eternal. God, may all of us choose to be washed and cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Thank you, Jesus, that this wasn't the end of your story, that you walked free from the clutches of death and you declared once and for all that it is finished. Nothing more needs to be done, that you've done everything that needs to be done so that we might have life in you, that we might have a relationship with you restored, our sins forgiven, our hope renewed.
and our salvation come. Hey, can we stand this morning, church? I said right at the start of this service that I wanted to give an opportunity for anybody today that had never made the decision to actually stand in the shadow of the cross and say, Jesus, today I choose you and what you've done to be my story. You see, if you've been trying to get into God's good books by behaving better or being better, you'll never get there. You'll always feel like you come up short. The Bible says simply, anyone that chooses to put their faith in Jesus, and by putting your faith in Jesus, it's just declaring that He is Lord, by inviting Him to be your Lord, by acknowledging that you were part of the reason that He got hung on a cross, that it was your sin and your brokenness that got Him nailed up to that place in the first time. And and the Bible just says, if, if we confess our sins, if we say, God, I'm really sorry for the things I've done, but today I choose to accept your forgiveness. I choose to put my faith and my trust in you, invite you to be my Saviour. Well, guess what? One day you too, with me, with everyone else here that's chosen to make that declaration, will stand firm in the shadow of all that Christ has done. And we won't have to suffer the consequence of our sin. We won't have to suffer the reality of death. But we too will walk into all eternity in the presence of our loving Saviour, Jesus. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and everybody who walks through our doors is welcome. If you'd like to connect with us, please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au to find out more.